Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We exist to connect people to live the life of a Jesus follower. And we're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. Just wanna make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you can find out more information about who we are and where we're headed as a church. Once again, thanks for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. Hope Church, this weekend we continue our summer preaching series. And I have the joy this weekend of introducing you to a very good friend who pastors Redemption Church in Mobile, Alabama. His name is Ed Litton. Ed is a pastor from the West. He was born in the Western United States and served out here in the West. And now he's serving in the Bible Belt down in Alabama, but he still has maintained this passion for what God is doing in the Western United States. So much so that when we here in Las Vegas were looking for a strategic partner church to join with us, Hope Church, in owning this city through the North American Mission Board and engaging here in planting, Ed Litton led his church to step up and say, we're gonna make a long-term commitment to investing in the city of Las Vegas, to planting churches in Las Vegas, and to mobilizing other churches to plant churches in Las Vegas. You're never gonna meet anybody who doesn't live in Las Vegas, who loves our city more than Ed Litton. Ed, it is an honor to have you here preaching at Hope Church today. We invite you to make yourself right at home. Just open up the Word of God and let our people hear your heart. Hope Church, let's give Ed Litton a warm welcome. Amen. Thank you, Hope Church. Wow. I'm so honored to be here. I love your pastor. Uh, as he said, I grew up in Tucson, Arizona, planted a church in Tucson, and then God, in his providence, moved my wife and children and I to Mobile, Alabama. I, I'm telling you, I went from the driest to the wettest climate in the world, and uh, it helped my complexion, but not much else. It uh, mildewed everything else. It was so bad in Tucson. We had one umbrella in one of those closets, you know, by the front door. We never used it. When we went to move, we opened it up and it had dry rotted. Uh, that's never happened in Alabama. But while God was moving us there, God in his providence was moving Vance Pittman and his family here. And, and I am so excited about what God is doing. There's something very unique happening in this church family. And I'm privileged to be here. I, I mean, I'm not a rapper. I'm not D.A. Horton. Um, I'm an old white guy. And, you know, I'd like to be a rapper, but my family always, my, my kids all say, Dad, please stop that now. Please stop that. If you love somebody who wants to be a rapper and they're an old white guy, let me just tell you, love them enough, tell them the truth. Don't do that. Amen? Hey, listen, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Judges, Judges chapter 6. Now, you may wonder why we're talking from the Old Testament. But it's a, it's a good question because all of God's Word is one. It is unified. It has one hero, one focus, and it's Jesus. Uh, listen to what Romans chapter 15 verse 4 says. It says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, 
that we through patience and comfort of the Scripture might have hope. In other words, the Old Testament, as we call it, was written pointing all of us to Jesus. The New Testament is all about Jesus. It's one testament. God's Word is all about Jesus, and I'm here to glorify Jesus. I'm going to talk about a very familiar person to some of you. Some of you have maybe never heard of his name, except you see his Bibles in every hotel you stay at. And his name is Gideon. Well, that's really not his Bibles. It's an organization honoring his name. But, but he's an amazing man in some very unusual ways. Tonight, I want to talk about what I'm calling the underdog principle. The underdog principle. Americans love underdogs. Uh, every politician wants to be the underdog. You hear it in their voices. We were behind and now we did this. And Everybody wants to be on the underdog team that wins the great victory. America was born as an underdog people. We were oppressed by the greatest, most powerful nation with the greatest, most powerful army and navy in the world. And we stood up to them. And so this is in our DNA. I want you to think about your favorite underdog story. Rudy, 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 Rudy. I was on the plane flying out here, and the woman next to me, I was working. The woman next to me was watching the movie called Eddie the Eagle. Have you seen this one? It's about this guy in Great Britain in 1988 that is a ski champion. It's, it's an amazing story. The 1980 Olympic hockey team was a miracle story. The 1983 NC State National Championship led by Jimmy Valvano for the NCAA, that, that is an amazing story. Let me tell you what the underdog principle is. When all odds are against you, God is for you. Can I say that again for the hearing impaired? <laughs> Everything needs to be repeated. When all odds are against you, God is for you. I'm talking to underdogs tonight. And I want you to hear this. Every disciple of Jesus Christ can experience glorious victory over the greatest challenges in their life through this underdog principle. And I want to share some things with you. But before I go any further, let me just talk, before we go to the text, I want to talk about that word glory. We sang about glory a while ago. The definition of glory was up on the screen Glory is when we magnify who God is and all that God is doing. But I want you to know God made every one of us to be, if you will, a glory hound. All of us have a hunger for glory. I'm going to tell you what I'm talking about. When you watch the sunset tonight, if I finish and you get out in time, when you watch the sunset tonight, there's a sense of glory there. There's something transcendent about that. And, and for a moment, it just kind of catches up with you. It creeps up on you. Where For a second there, you're going, this is big. This is huge. And there's that feeling that you have that this is something bigger than yourself. You have the same feeling when someone beautiful touches you and says, I love you. You have the same feeling when you look into the face of your child. You have the same feeling, ladies, when you find a great sale on a great pair of shoes. Or guys, when you get at that car you've always wanted and longed for. When you have a great meal shared with great people. When you listen to a stunning song or a symphony. For that moment. When you climb onto a Harley Hog for the first time. There's that moment of glory. And, and here's what we do as human beings. Listen to this. This is a part of our fallen sinful condition. We want to take that moment which is trend, that, and make it last. 
We want it to last forever. And so we take that moment and we turn it into an idol where we say, this is what life is all about. That feeling of love, that feeling of acceptance, that feeling of glory, that feeling that is transcended, that somehow is connected to God, so that must be God in my life. And that's why we are idolaters by nature. You see, you ride that Harley Hog, and it was such an amazing experience. You think, i got to do this every day. And then the next thing you know, you're buying a dealership. Next thing you know, you're getting a tattoo on your chest that says Harley Davidson. you got all these things because that's what you're living for. That's idolatry. What you've got to do is understand that all of those wonderful glory moments have a purpose. They're like the road sign that you see on the highway. They point you to the ultimate glory. And the ultimate glory is God. The ultimate glory is Jesus Christ. The ultimate glory is a place that God has prepared for the redeemed of the Lord. It's a place where we will experience that glory forever and ever and ever and ever. But listen to me, it's not now. So thank God for those wonderful, glorious experiences. Because they point us, they're like a signpost that say, this is the way to go. When my wife Kathy who, by the way, sat through the first two services, and there's a federal law that prohibits pastor's wives from having to listen to their husbands preach three times in a row. And so she's not here tonight, but when we got off the plane yesterday, we rented a car, and we're heading out. We're going to go to Hoover Dam. I mean, we are so tourist. We're going to just go Hoover Dam, see it. I've been there before, but she, so we did. And, and when we got off the airport, there's a sign that says Hoover Dam with an arrow pointing that way. Well, the arrow, if I were just an idiot, the arrow is pointing straight at an In-N-Out burger. And if I jumped out in front of the In-N-Out burger and said, hey, take my picture, I'm a Hoover Dam, that, that would be idiotic, would it not? You've got to still go a distance. Let me tell you, the glory that you sense in your love, the glory that you sense in those moments of God's glory shared with us are just road signs. You're not there yet. You're not there yet. Enjoy them. But don't make idols out of them. Don't let your life be robbed of its richness of believing that there's something more that God has for you. Here's the underdog principle. When all odds are against you, God is for you. The story of Gideon. We will see in this story how the underdog principle works. And I want to give you something you need to know. Something you desperately need to know. There are six principles that you desperately need to know. And I hope you'll write them down. Get a pencil, get a pen, get some lipstick out, whatever you need to do. And write these six principles down. Here's the first one. What you need to know. God, number one, God is drawn to the underdog. Genesis, uh, Judges chapter 6 verse 1. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. I just finished a series and a study on the book of Judges. We called it king and country. And what we realized is the theme of the book of Judges is this. There was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. I think I just described our world, our nation, our generation. There's no king in America. Everyone makes up their own rules. There's no king in America. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes. And our struggles and our lawsuits and our conflicts and our police and all these different things are trying to govern us who are all doing our own thing. And it leads to anarchy and disaster. That's not what I'm here to talk about. But I'm telling you, in that context, what you have is these Midianites. This was an invading force. There's a cycle in Judges. And the cycle is the people of God would sin, and God would allow an oppressor to come in, harm them, oppress them, 
enslave them, and then they would cry out to God. And in their repentance, God would hear their cry. And oftentimes, even before they cried and begin a deliverance, he raised up Gideon to be a deliverer. Now, now look at this. Look at verse 11 of Judges chapter 6. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. You know what the Midianites would do? They would show up at harvest time after you had planted wheat and, and nurtured that wheat, harvested that wheat, threshed that wheat, got that wheat ready to be put in some bread. They would come in and steal every bit of wheat. The people were starving. This would be like having April 15th every day of this year. Now, now watch this. And then it says that when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said to him, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, this is one of the most comical scenes in the Bible. Because if you want to picture what Gideon looks like, for some of us older people, we'll be able to identify with this a lot easier than some of the younger ones. But Gideon looks like Barney Fife. He's standing there with his bullet in his pocket, not in his gun. He's, he's a, a weak guy. He's struggling. And he's threshing wheat in a wine press. Let me tell you where you thresh wheat. Because most of us think our food comes from the grocery store. It actually comes from the farm. And what they would do is they would take the wheat, and the kernels of the heads of that wheat were covered in this thing called chaff that would encase it and protect it. They would go on a hillside. They would take those stalks of wheat. They would pound it against a stone or a piece of wood. And when they would raise it up, the chaff would burst, and it's lighter, so the wind that would brush across that hillside would drive the chaff away, and the only thing left would be the good wheat. And they would pile it up there. The reason Gideon is not on a hillside is because he fears his oppressors coming to take what he's hard worked for. They're coming to steal what he has, for his own survival, he's in a wine press, which was in the lowest part of the farm. The Midianites would invade every year at harvest time, and they did this year after year after year. Let me ask you something. What are you struggling with? What oppressor threatens you? It may be a habit, it may be an addiction, it may be a past, it may be a troubled relationship or a marriage, it may be the job that you're in, it, it may be any number of things, it may be the debt that you're in, but something seems, no matter how hard you work, to come into your life and rob it, and, or, or when you start to make progress spiritually, there's this haunting memory of your past where, where something is grabbing you saying, you're no good, this will never last. You're in the wrong place with the wrong people. And so what God is showing us is that his heroes in the Bible are not strong people. They're people just like you and me. They're struggling people. They're people who have a past. They're people who fear the future. Let me say this. God doesn't call the brave. He makes brave the called. Let me say that again. God does not call the brave. He makes brave the called. Well, see, God's call on your life is all you need of the authority that God has called you, the authority that God loves you, that he's chosen you, even in your brokenness, to serve him and his purpose in this world and in Las Vegas, Nevada. What God says about you, now listen to this, what God says about you is the most important thing ever said about you. Many of us in this room heard someone 
maybe even a parent, tragically, or someone, a teacher, or somebody even in church that made a comment about us, I'll never forget it, being said about me, things that still resonate with me. I find myself trying to prove that what was said about me was not true. But see, I'm telling you, whatever your teacher, whatever your parent, step-parent, whatever they said about you is not true compared to what God says about you. And God says you're dearly loved. God says that he gave himself for you. That God saw you as having such value that he sent his son to die in your place. You see, what God says about you is more important than not anyone else could ever say about you. And look what God said to him. The angel of the Lord is the Lord himself. He's standing there in this pathetic little guy hiding out, fearful, threshing wheat in a wine press, which means he's going to have a lot of crunching when he eats his bread. But listen to me. He says to him, mighty warrior, mighty warrior. So what do you hear in the Lord say to you tonight? He said, man, I'm not a mighty warrior. I struggle. No, no, no. If God says you're a mighty warrior, you're a mighty warrior. If God says you're a woman of God, you're a woman of God. If God says you're a man of grace, you're a man of grace. If God says it, and look at the word of God, and see, this is so difficult for all of us, but we've got to train ourselves to listen to what God says and not what our own. By the way, you know no one talks to you more than you do. That's tweetable. Nobody talks to me more than I talk to me. And i got to tell you, most days I wake up saying things to myself that just are not consistent with the Word of God. What I've got to do is drag my sorry carcass to the Word of God every day and say, God, what do you say? And what you say is more important than even what I say. Number one, God draws near to the underdog. You may be thinking today, it's a miracle I'm even in this room. Some of you come into this place and you're thinking, I don't belong here. I'm not a good person. I'm telling you, that's, you are exactly who belongs here. Some of you walk to this room today thinking the roof's going to fall in on me. It's not. Because God loves you, he put this church here. Because God loves you, someone invited you here. Because God loves you, he is drawing you to himself because God is drawn to the underdog. Number two, write this down. God weakens the underdog further. Look at this story. Jump over to chapter 7, verse 1 of Judges. It says, early in the morning, Jerob Bel, that is Gideon, and all of his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp, they camped, uh, the camp of Midian was to the north of them in the valley uh, near the hill of Moray. Now, now watch this. Something's happened. When God called Gideon for a moment, he believed God. God said, you're a mighty warrior, and I want you to raise up opposition to the Midianites. I'm going to use you to drive them out. So Gideon did what anyone in their right mind would do. He's thinking, I don't want to do this by myself. So he enlisted 32,000 men to come and fight. Now, folks, I just got to tell you something. That is a feat. That is amazing. He enlisted 32,000. But look what God does now in verse 2. He says to Gideon, are you looking at verse 2? He says, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into your hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now, folks, this is amazing. This statement explains much of the Christian life. You are too strong in and of yourself. You are too strong in what you know. You are too strong in your abilities to provide for yourself. You are too strong financially. You see, it's in this place, when you're the underdog, God sometimes will take you even 
further down to where you are more dependent upon him than you've ever been before. And you need to marinate in this for a moment because this explains why at times some things in the Christian life seem to go from bad to worse. But when they do seem that way, it is because God is moving and God is doing something. Look at verse 3. He says to Gideon, now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. That's where they were amassing the army. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. Now, folks, listen, this is huge. I, I wonder in my mind when he said, tell those who are fearful to go home if Gideon didn't move out with the crowd. And somebody taps him on the shoulder and says, no, boss, you got to stay here. You're, you're in charge. Look at verse 4. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. Now, let me ask you something. Are you being thinned out by any chance? I'm not talking about your hairline, but I may be talking about your hairline. Are you being thinned out? In your work, in your job, are you being thinned out in your emotions? Does it seem like you're living on a ragged edge? Or, or is it seems like God may be? And you know, our first temptation is always to say, God, why are you doing this to me? And that's not a bad question, but you need to be willing to hear his answer. Look, look what he says. He says, if I say to the one, he shall go, he shall go. If I say to the other, he shall not go, he will not go. Verse 5, so Gideon took the men down to the water, there the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog laps, and those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank with cupped hands, lapping like dogs, and all the rest got down on their knees to drink. Who does this? Who comes up with this kind of thought? What does it say about God? It's absolutely amazing. It says he has a sense of humor. It also says God likes dogs better than cats. But anyway, <laughs> this is a 97% reduction in his armed forces. Hear me. God does not delight to hurt you. God does not delight in thinning you out. God does not delight. He does not rejoice even in the death of wicked people, the Bible says, God does not delight in these things, but he delights in you being his disciple. He delights in you growing in your trust. He delights in you becoming a champion used of God for his glory. That's what he delights in. He will reduce the size of your army. He may affect your health. He may touch your job. Or he may expose a struggle in your marriage. Listen to this statement. If dependence upon God is the objective, then our weakness is our advantage. The problem in the American church is we are not consciously dependent upon the Lord. Oh, we say it, but when push and shove come together, we step up. In reality, what we need is a church utterly dependent upon the Lord. And I think we may be in such a time as this. We may be in a time where God is allowing his church to face things we've never thought we would ever face. 
But for his glory, we put our trust in him. When your marriage failed, you learned what a heavenly father is all about. When you got laid off, you learned what God's supply is and how creative it is. When you were lonely, and only then did you understand what it meant to abide in his presence. Without trials, we would never know the faithfulness of our God. And he is faithful. My wife Kathy and I have been married for seven years next month. Kathy was married to a wonderful man named Rick Ferguson who pastored the Riverside Baptist Church in Denver, Colorado 14 years ago. He was killed in a car accident on their family vacation. Nine years ago, this coming August, my wife of 25 years was killed in a car accident taking our daughter to a cello competition. And both of our lives went varying off on a different trajectory than we ever imagined. Both of our lives were shattered to the core. Both of our lives, we wondered if we would ever live on. Both of our lives were forever marked and changed. This is not what we had bargained for. People asked me a lot of questions. Were you angry? Well, sure. Were you confused? Absolutely. Did you have doubts? Yes. But one thing both of us would tell you today, our lives did not become perfect when he brought us together. But what God has done is he's shown us his faithfulness in the most desperate moments of our lives. And we have a message of hope to anybody. That the glory of a good marriage and the glory of a great church and the glory of a family is one thing. But they don't always last but they all point to the glory that will ultimately be ours in Christ. Oh, my friend, listen. I can't promise you that you won't go through tragedy. I can't promise you that you won't be tried. One young seminary student asked me about a month after Tammy died. He said, did your belief, what you believe about the sovereignty of God, did it help you or hurt you? And I looked at him and I said, yes. It utterly devastated me that God would let me hurt that desperately. And it utterly comforted me at the same time. It's the weirdest experience I've ever had. And I'm here to tell you that you don't have to fear my experience. You don't have to fear what life has for you. Even if God leads you, even if he reduces you, even if he brings you to a hard place, he promises, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And I discovered that even at the best days of my marriage, there was a sense of loneliness because marriage cannot satisfy the deepest longing of your heart. Only God can. Matter of fact, some of you are expecting that out of your marriage and you need to stop because the truth is only God can satisfy. Only he can be with you always and at all times. You see, Gideon is here in, in chapter 7, verse 7. The Lord said to him, with the 300 men that lapped up like dogs, I will give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. Do you realize this is now a 97% reduction in the total force? And we've got 300 guys left. And Gideon doesn't say, go out and get weapons. Go get some AR-15s. Go get some semi-automatics. He doesn't, he doesn't say any of that. He says, as a matter of fact, get a trumpet and, and, a, and a pole and, and a pottery, and we're going to win this battle. See, I don't know what tools God is going to put in your hands, but I, I want to tell you this. When God moves, when God moves, you will see his glory. What's keeping you from God's power in your life? 
The answer, your strength. Everything you trust besides God alone is keeping you from the power of God in your church, in your life, in your marriage. You say, we're desperate. That's not a bad place. I've been there. And when God is with you, your worst desperation is transformed. Your strength is dangerous because it blinds you to your need for him. It blinds you to your need for his mercy and his grace. A.W. Tozer said, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Now, I know, I know, pain and suffering, watch me now, pain and suffering leads to a lot of very important questions. I read a story recently about a little bird that was kind of like me in the sense that he got loss of his calendar and the other birds had flown south for the winter. It was starting to turn cold up in the north where he lived. And so he's kind of late, but he's thinking, hopefully I'm not too late. The rest of the flock's probably in Panama by now. I can catch up with them. So he starts flying, trying to get south for the winter. He gets down somewhere around Tennessee and Mississippi, and, and the ice starts forming on his wings. It's turning cold quickly. And all of a sudden, he finds he's losing altitude. Next thing, he crashes into a barnyard. He's there with frozen wings in a barnyard in Mississippi. What in the world am I going to do? I'm going to die here. When all of a sudden, a cow walks up and dumps its entire load on top of him. <laughs> and suddenly, he's thinking, it could not get worse. You ever think that? It could not get worse when all of a sudden he realizes that the ice is starting to melt on his wings. So he starts climbing out, and he's thinking, he starts chirping to the top of his voice, this is awesome, this is awesome. I thought it was terrible, but actually it's going to be my deliverance when all of a sudden a cat hears him chirping, comes up and eats him. You say, so what's the message here, preacher? Three, three basic lessons, maybe four. Not everyone who drops manure on you is your enemy. Not everyone who digs you out of the manure pile is your friend. And uh, when you uh, uh, are in the middle of a pile of manure, keep your chirper shut. How's that? <laughs> On the fourth one, all cats are evil. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Here's the third principle. Write this down quickly. God rewards underdog obedience. The trajectory of judges the trajectory of Judges goes from strength to weakness. We go from Joshua, who was a premier leader in Israel, all the way down to Samson, who is absolutely a moral and spiritual wreck of a man. So what does that say? It says we expect too much of our leaders. We expect perfection from our leaders, when in fact we're all struggling on this journey, and all of us, even at our best, are simply road signs pointing to the glory of God you see, we like, always like for the graphic to go to the right and up, don't we? We always like to show that we're making progress in business. We're making progress at church. We're making progress in our lives. But God's plan sometimes is to achieve the ultimate victory by us first going down, for us first humbling ourselves in simple obedience to the Lord. In our weakness, we obey, and God provides power and glorious victory. Listen to me. The first thing that gets jettisoned when most of us go through hard times is our simple faithfulness and obedience to the Lord. It's the first thing we throw overboard. It's the first thing we're tempted to say, this doesn't matter anymore. If God can't protect my wife, then he, he doesn't deserve anything else from me. But that's an attitude that is destructive. Can I tell you something? When you're hurting, when you're the underdog, keep parenting. 
Keep serving Christ. Keep praying for the lost. Keep sharing the gospel. Keep enduring the injustice. Keep moving and believing and trusting God. God doesn't send miracles through human might. He sends them through obedience. And he knows the injustice you've suffered. Look at verse 15. When Gideon, when Gideon heard the dream, let me tell you what this is about. Gideon's army has now been reduced to 300 men, and they don't have a sword among them. So Gideon's naturally a little nervous. The Midianite army was massive. And so he, he takes a friend. In the middle of the night, he climbs down. He sneaks into the Midianite camp to the edges of it, and he listens to a tent, a conversation going on between two Midianites. It's a great story. And he hears one of them tell the other, he goes, man, I had a terrible dream last night. He goes, really, what'd you dream? I dreamed this huge barley loaf came rolling down the mountain. <laughs> and it hit our tent and it destroyed the entire army. We were wiped out. He goes, woo, that's a bad dream. He said, that can't be anything but a message from God. And that barley loaf is Gideon. And so God is going to destroy our army and he's going to do it through Gideon. And when Gideon heard this, look back at verse 15. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshiped God. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into our hands. Here it leads to the fourth principle. God is patient with underdog doubts. God is patient with underdog doubts. I find this extremely comforting because I have doubts. You see, if you think you have to have perfect faith before God's going to move, I'm telling you, it's God doesn't move and God doesn't save because you have perfect faith or even great faith or strong faith. It is not where your faith, it's not your faith that God honors in its strength. What he does is even the weakest faith placed in a mighty God will save you. In other words, it's not the measure of your faith, it's the measure of his faithfulness that he says, if anyone will call upon the name of the Lord, he will be saved. If anyone will trust me with their finances, I will provide. I will show you amazing things if you will believe me and trust me. This is what God says. And God is patient, though, when we doubt. I have struggled with doubts. I'll tell you why in just a second, but, but I, I am comforted by a story that Jesus gave us in Mark chapter 9, verse 22. He came off of the mountain of an incredible experience with the Father. And Peter, James, and John saw this. It's called the Mount of Transfiguration. And when he came down, he came down to a demonic valley. And, and I'm going to tell you something. I, I cannot imagine what it's like for Jesus to leave heaven to come to earth in the first place. But for him to have a taste of heaven, I think he deserved to stay longer. Peter, James, and John would agree because they were ready to build tabernacles. We're going to have a camp meeting here. God, we're going to let you just enjoy the glory that you deserve. But Jesus said, no way we got to go back. When he got back in the valley, there was a terrible fight going on. A bunch of religious people were arguing with the disciples. And in the process, as fights often happen, the people who are the most innocent, the people who are the most needy get left out. Here's a man standing over here with a demon-possessed son. And the disciples tried to cast the demon out, but they couldn't. And this man so pathetically looks at Jesus and said, Sir, your disciples could not help me. Can you help me? My son gets possessed by this demon. It's been there all of his life. It'll throw him into the fire. We have to watch him 24-7. He's a special needs child, but I'm just telling you, we need you to help. Can you help? Jesus said, can I help? He said, anything is possible to those who believe. Do you believe? The man's answer is stunning. 
He said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I'm sitting there thinking to myself, I know this guy. That, I am this guy. When my wife died, my oldest son, Josh, took a mosh pit dive into drugs. In the last nine years, he has succeeded only at destroying his marriage, winding up on the streets of Atlanta, getting hooked to heroin, eight, eight treatment programs. And I'm at my wit's end. I come on this story that I've read a thousand times. I've preached this passage. But one day it leapt off that page and into my heart when I realized that all of the self-flagellation of me not being the father I could have been or should have been or the beating myself up, where did I go wrong? What was different? What could have been done different? What, what if this had not happened? What if we'd never moved? What? Until suddenly I realized that has nothing to do with this. That Jesus will take whatever beat-up faith I've got willing to put upon him. And he looked at the man and said, it's done. And he drove the demon out. I had a lot of reasons to say, God, I don't know. I, I, I believe in you. I know you have all power, but I also know you gave my son a capacity to choose and make bad choices. But I want you to know, for the last year and a half, my son has been sober. He's been clean. And to God be the glory. Can I tell you something? If, you, if you've been down this journey with me, you know what I'm about to say is true. I will not boast about tomorrow. I will not say he's done, we're finished, I'll have a good night's sleep, I'll, I'll never get another phone call, I'll never worry about relapse, but that's not my struggle. That's, I, I put all of those things in the hand of God and I trust a sovereign God. Got him arrested a year and a half ago. Got him arrested. You say, oh, that's disastrous. No, no. See, I had to learn how to pray for my son. I had to learn how to pray. I don't pray, oh God, don't let him trip, don't let him fall. Oh God, don't let him get in trouble. If he gets in trouble and leads him to salvation, so be it! For God's glory. And I, I finally realized I'm just the temporary father. He needs his eternal father. And so do you. I, I don't know where your faith's at tonight, but I want to tell you something. It doesn't have to stay where it's at tonight. You say, I, I got this much faith. Good. Give it to Jesus. Put whatever beleaguered faith you've got upon him, and friend, he will save you to the uttermost. And he will drive out the demons, and he will transform that person you love. He will heal. He will do whatever it takes. I'm not going to tell you exactly how it's going to work out. I'm not going to tell you that someday all the birds will be chirping and everything's going to be fine. I'm just here to tell you that our God is faithful and cannot be otherwise. Number five, God resources underdog faith. Look what happens in this amazing story. And I've got to say it fast, so bear with me. Listen quickly. In verse 19 of Judges 7, it says, Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp. I said 300 a while ago. Excuse me. There's a hundred. Gideon and the hundred men reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. That's about 3 o'clock in the morning. And just after they had changed the guard, that's a very important statement, they blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. They had these sticks with torches inside of these jars. So they're holding them at night so you can't see the light, trumpet in hand, 
And all of a sudden, on command, they break the jars. The light comes on. They blow the trumpet. Look what else they said. And it says in verse 20, And three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torch in their hands and holding their right hands the trumpet. They blew it and shouted, The sword of the Lord and Gideon. And while each man held his position, look at this, they didn't charge, they held their ground. Around the camp, the Midianites ran, crying as they fled. And when the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with swords. This is an amazing strategic moment that only God could design. It was at the very moment when the guard was changing at 3 in the morning. A third of the men had been sleeping all night soundly. A third of the men had been on watch, and they were out bivouacking. Another third were now up and getting ready to take over that watch. So you've got guys being awoken by this terrible sound. They see this army coming in. They think it's their enemy. It's their own guys. They attack them. They turn on the others who are getting ready to go to bed, and the whole thing is in total upheaval. And the army is wiped out. Can I tell you something? Never again did the Midianites ever oppress Israel from this point on. I don't know how God's going to deliver you. I don't know how God's going to show himself mighty to save. But I can promise you this, that when God does it, it's done. And any scheme I can come up with, any scheme you can come up with, will never do it. Which leads us to the sixth principle. God transformed He transforms underdog weakness. God did not lay out a plan for Gideon to approve. God did not say, Gideon, you give it your best. We'll see what we can do. The forces, this forced Gideon to trust God every step of the way. God doesn't owe you a plan. He doesn't owe me a plan. But God promises that he'll be with us at every moment of critical decision that we make. And through it all, God's way made Gideon a better leader, a stronger man. You see, we want to fix our problems, but God wants to make us his disciples. He wants us to walk with him and with one another. It's better to do life with Jesus than to have the greatest army in the world. Can I tell you something else that many of you will not believe when I first say it, but if you think about it, it's better to walk with Jesus than it is to have all the money in the world. Money's not going to solve your problems. Even if it paid every bill, and gave you the best retirement in the world, it will not solve your problems. Your problems are still going to be there, and even worse. You say, well, if I could just win the lottery. I'm going to tell you, that's the best way to do genealogical research on your family. (laughs) Win big. You'll find more relatives than you ever imagined. (laughs) Hudson Taylor said, listen to this, all God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on God being with them. Is God with you? Oh, yes, he is. Even if you did not beckon him, he's with you. He woke you up this morning. He made the sun shine on you today. He's walked with you. He has blessed you. But what he wants more than just being your sugar daddy, he wants to be your Savior and your Lord. He wants you to know his love and to love him back. He's not hungry for your love, but he has done everything for your love. The question is, will you love him back? Now, let me just ask you a couple of quick questions. Have you identified in this message your Midianite struggle? What's your struggle? I've shared some of my struggles. What are yours? If you identified, I think it's very important that you also accept that God may allow further weakening in your life, not to harm you, but ultimately to show his great power. 
in your struggle? Will you be obedient to him? Make that your priority? Will you confess your doubts to God and not just to others? Will you not just turn your doubt into a complaint about God? I don't know why God seems to do everything for everybody else, but he doesn't do it for me. Why don't you stop that nonsense? And once you start saying, I'm believing God. I don't know how, but I'm believing God. I believe God's going to work and God's going to move. Would you ask God in prayer? Would you lay out your Midianite struggle? Would you say, Lord, if you can use anything, would you use me? I'm going to ask some of you in a moment just to get up and come to this altar and just bring your Midianite struggle, whatever God's helped you to see tonight, it is, just bring it to the Lord and say, Lord, I want to ask you to do a miracle. Not just to relieve me of this, but I'm going to ask you to use this to bring others to yourself. Use this for your glory. But the most important decision is for you to hear the gospel in this story. The gospel is not that Gideon was a great man and you should try to be like Gideon. The gospel is that God takes weak, broken people like you and me, and when Jesus Christ comes into our lives, he transforms us. He transforms us. You see, here's the gospel. God made you for himself. God made you for his glory. But sin separated you and I from God. C.S. Lewis said there's an inconsolable longing, a secret signature on every human soul. Friend, you were made for God. You are God's very own, but you are separated from God because of sin. But God, in his great love for you, sent his son to be your sin bearer. Matter of fact, he paid a debt he did not owe because you and I owe a debt of sin we cannot pay. And the Bible says anyone who will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone who says, I put my trust in what Jesus finished on the cross and his subsequent resurrection from the dead, I believe and put my weak faith in that one event. And I promise you on the authority of God's word, he will save you. The moment you put your trust in him, repent of your sins, turn from them and say, God, I need you. I want you. I want to know you. And so with your heads bowed and eyes closed, I would invite you to make that transaction right now. I would invite you to put your faith and trust in Jesus right at this moment. With heads bowed and eyes closed around this room, it's not the exact words of the prayer. It's the heart and the condition of your heart. Will you cry out to God? He will hear you. He draws close to the brokenhearted, the Bible says, and those that are crushed in spirit. God is for the underdog. And nobody would ever think that your life could amount to anything. But God has chosen you. And he's knocking at the door of your heart. Would you let him in? In your own words, just say, Jesus, come in. Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. I believe you died for my sins in my place. Please come into my life. Oh, friend, did you just pray that prayer? If you did, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. In a moment, there will be pastors standing here at the front to pray, to encourage, to answer questions, to counsel, to help you take the next step in your journey with Jesus. It starts tonight. And but it will not end. It will not end until you are in glory with him. And then it will just be beginning forever and ever. But the first step is to take a stand and to come and to say, I'm trusting Jesus. I've asked him to save me tonight. The next step is to be scripturally baptized, as we'll see some people baptized in just a moment. The next step is to follow the Lord and to grow as a disciple of Jesus. But the first step 
is to confess him to another. For believers all around this room, God has showed you your Midianite struggle, and this is a moment of decision. Am I going to trust God? Am I going to believe God for my Midianite struggle? Friend, there's some great battles that need to be fought in this land, in this city. And tag, you're it. God has chosen you. And who knows what he'll do in your struggle. He'll make you a greater disciple, but he will use you to bring many other people to the knowledge of God's love. So come to this altar, lay down that struggle, and ask God to do a miracle through it. Let's all stand to our feet together. Lord, as we stand, we respond. We take the next step of faith. Lord, our faith may be weak, but we put it in you, and we trust you in Jesus' name.